Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hi, Chris. Good afternoon. Good to talk again. Uh, Today, um, I'd like to discuss with you uh, lots of news out of the Irish economy, both on the economic data front and also on the employment front. Um, I want to talk about inflation in the Eurozone and also the comments from Jay Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, earlier in the week. Uh, There's lots going on on US and Eurozone labour markets, which are pretty consistent with a lot of discussion we've had over the last few months on what's happening in labour markets, despite the global headwinds that are building. Chris, you want to talk about some of the comments that have come into our Substack account in response to the last podcast we did. And you also want to talk about the end of the world. So if I may begin by talking about some of the Irish economic news out there, uh, Today, we got economic growth data for the third quarter of the year. And um, looking at what happened, um, it, it just amplifies once again the very strange nature of the Irish economy and the difficulty in interpreting economic data. The first measure of economic activity, and it's the, the international comparator, is gross domestic product. That's the total value of goods and services produced in the economy. It expanded by 2.3% during the quarter. However, 
when you strip out the impact of the multinational sector and particularly the profit repatriations, gross national product declined by 2.2%. And the net factor outflows, which is primarily the profit repatriations by the multinational sector, 36.2 billion outflows during the third quarter. Um, I look back over the time series and that to me would appear to be the largest ever quarterly outflow of profits from the multinational sector. And I think that's really indicative of the extreme profitability of the chemical and pharmaceutical sector, particularly. Um, But if you strip that out, gross national product declined by 2.2%. And then if you delve down further, if you strip out some of the other distortions created by multinational activities, such as intellectual property assets, were left with modified domestic demand, which actually contracted by 1.1%. Okay, I don't want to bombard our listeners with all of these statistics explaining what's happening in the Irish economy. But basically, the message is the multinational sector continues to grow quite strongly. Output from that sector was up by 2.5% during the quarter. Um, Whereas domestic activity, much, much weaker consumption increased by just 0.3% during the quarter. Um, And indeed, the government's contribution declined by 0.3%. So ongoing suggestions that the global headwinds, increased interest rates, the cost of living crisis is certainly impacting on domestic economic activity. Um, From a sector perspective, we saw a decline of um, 7.4% in output from the ICT sector, that's information communication technology. Um, And that's reflecting clearly what's happening on the global technology front at the moment, uh, the job implication for Ireland, which we have discussed over the last couple of podcasts. So in overall terms, I would say that the economic data um, suggesting that the domestic component of the economy is definitely losing some momentum. I'm not really... Can I just cut across you there just for a second, Jim, because you said that you didn't want to go too deep into this. And I totally understand why you said that, because I often say something similar myself. But at risk of preempting what I was going to talk about later on, um, readers uh, readers and listeners' perspectives and feedback on what we're, we've been saying, um, a lot of people quite recently actually have expressed uh, appreciation for the deep dive that we do into the Irish economy from a number of perspectives. One, obviously a lot of our listeners are Irish and are very interested and don't seem to be getting this stuff elsewhere. One of the reasons why we do this podcast is that we think the traditional media is not providing this kind of service that perhaps it used to in the past. And we have all sorts of people from teachers of economics um, at leaving cert level. Uh, I think that a a lot of people who are not Irish should be interested in the Irish economy because I think it's a bellwether for the global economy. The comments that you're making there about the pharmaceutical sector, the chemical sector, the tech sector has resonance everywhere, of course. And if the Irish economy is slowing down, I think that tells you a lot, of course, about Ireland, but it also tells you a lot about what's happening to the world economy and this slowdown in the world economy that we have been talking about for a long period of time appears to be with us. And you can now see it really for the very first time, I think, uh, in the Irish economic data. So I just thought I, I would I would add that, that our, our listeners seem to appreciate the deep dive that in particular you do 
when it comes to the numbers. You've been referred to as the numbers guy on our podcast by our by our listeners many many different ways, and um, so I'm just encouraging you to keep it up actually uh, okay yeah thanks for that chris uh, just to summarize i guess the points i'm trying to make uh, the domestic components of the economy slowing down as i say consumption increasing by just 0.3 percent during the quarter which is pretty slow but the other uh, key thing that stands out is what's happening on the multinational side chemical and pharmaceutical sector still expanding very strongly and the ICT sector, as I say, down by 7.4%, which is reflecting those global pressures on technology. Um, in, in relation to the overall health of the Irish economy, what continues to come to the surface is the dual nature of the economy. And that became very apparent over the two years of COVID and has continued to be um, a characteristic of the Irish economy. The multinational sector, which at the moment is being dominated by the strong growth of the chemical and pharmaceutical sector, but the multinational sector contributed 56% of value added in the Irish economy in the third quarter. That's up from 46% in the first quarter of 2020. So you could say that, and we've discussed this many times about the concentration risk that Ireland has both on the employment and the corporation tax front from this very strong multinational performance. Um, it, it is definitely a concentration risk and something we need to keep an eye on. But given that the other domestic elements of the economy are under significant pressure, particularly the consumer expenditure side of the economy, and I think that's going to get worse, um, it is great that we have this anchor of multinational activity. And while the ICT problems are starting to impact, thankfully, the chemical and pharma side continues to grow very strongly. And indeed, in that regard, yesterday we got an announcement from Pfizer that it is to invest $1.2 billion in, a, in its plant here in Grange Castle in Dublin. And that's going to create four to 500 jobs by 2027. Um, and while it takes a while for this sort of investment announcement to translate into real jobs, uh, what it does show is that companies like Pfizer still extremely committed to the Irish economy. And when they continue to put that sort of investment into their activities here, that really is a good long term sign. Um, different piece of news. Then this morning we got an announcement from Intel that it's going to offer its some of its staff here in Ireland and it employs 5000 people in Leakslip. It is going to offer and it is rumored, well, sorry, it is being stated that it's manufacturing jobs that are going to be affected by this, but it's offering employees three months unpaid leave. Um, and this is reflecting global forces. Um, Pfizer has, sorry, Intel has made a commitment to significantly cut its expenditure at a global level. And what's happening in Ireland is not any reflection of its performance here in Ireland. It is purely reflecting its global difficulties at the moment because Intel has lost its preeminent position as a chip maker to AMD. Um, so not alone is it under competitive pressure as a company, but it is also facing a significant slowdown in the demand for chips as a result of a significant slowdown in the sales of um, laptops and PCs. So Intel 
you know, a company that has dominated the chip market for many years is is experiencing some challenging trading conditions at the moment. Um, and that is now, as I say, being reflected in the decisions it's making in relation to its Irish operation. But I stress again that this is a global rather than an Irish phenomenon. Uh, but it's just consistent with the narrative in recent weeks about the problems facing the global technology sector. So all in all, I would summarize the Irish economic story at the moment as still a very positive one, but there are ongoing signs of pressure feeding through to different areas of the economy. On the inflation front, Chris, we got a significant development in euro area earlier this week. At least the markets regarded as very significant, and it, it just shows you the sort of environment we're living in at the moment. But the decline in headline inflation in the euro area from 10.6% in October to 10% in November was taken very positively by the markets because it has convinced many that the European Central Bank on December 15th, which is the next ECB meeting, will increase rates by just a half percent rather than three quarters of 1%, which some people were expecting. Um, the key driver of that decline in inflation is energy. And indeed, the year-on-year -year increase in energy prices declined from 41.5% to 34.9%. And that's reflecting what's happening on global crude oil prices. Um, the core rate of inflation remained unchanged at 5%. And something that's continuing to um, resonate in the euro area is the food side. And that's something we've spoken about in the context of Ireland. Food price inflation is becoming more and more of a thing. And that is reflecting climate change impact on food production, but more particularly at the moment, the impact that the Ukraine war has had on fertilizer prices and also on the global food supply chain. But um, the markets taking have taken it relatively positively um, and are, are clearly taken as an indication that perhaps the global inflation cycle has peaked and that we will see a gradual decline in inflation um, as 22 progresses. Yeah, the um, inflation story has also had a twist today from the US jobs data, of course. Uh, they came in slightly stronger than expected. <clears throat> and that's, to an extent, not fully negated the effects of Jerome Powell's comments earlier this week, hinting at a slower rate of interest rate increases coming in the United States because there's a hope that inflation has peaked there. And there's lots of stories in the media, the financial press anyway, speculating or asking the question, has global inflation peaked? Whenever that peak comes, I think it's always important to remember that it is going to be two steps forward, one step backward. There's going to be, I think, more good months and bad months, but there will be bad months. Within the non-farm payrolls, the, jo the jobs report today, there was a hefty or at least relatively hefty increase in wages. Nothing too alarming in my book, but something the markets didn't like. So today wasn't a good day for either Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, or for, so far at least, markets trying to bet that the peak in inflation is here now. Um, I think that it probably is, and I think there are lots of reasons for that. You've mentioned energy. In the States, there's all sorts of technical factors one huge one being rents. And I know that has resonance in Ireland and the UK, where rents are also been going up a lot. 
And the way in which the rental component of the inflation numbers in the states is calculated means that that measure in the US is distorted. But there's a couple of interesting things to do with that. First of all, as we've always said, the property crisis thing that afflicts Ireland is a has a global dimension and the rental thing is very much present in the UK trust me I, I know that firsthand and also it's been contributing to US inflation a lot and there's a there's a, a view that the rental thing has passed its peak in the states as well which is interesting the property price thing in the UK we had the biggest fall for some time in one of the UK property price indices this week So I repeat the comments that I've made many times in the recent past. I think that we are through the peak in global uh, property price inflation. In some cases, they're still going up, but they're going up at a a much slower rate. And in the case of the UK, at least, but also countries like Canada and the United and Australia, that I think they're actually falling. I mentioned the US jobs report as being a wee bit stronger than expected its near neighbour, Canada, also today produced weaker than expected jobs. So this mixed picture that presents itself of a world economy that is slowing, not slumping, I think is consistent with all of the data that you presented for Ireland, for the numbers that we've got out of the States. The one economy, as you know, and I won't go into it today because we've talked about it so much recently, that the one economy that I'm really worried about is the UK. I think that that historically over the last few years has been one of the weakest and will continue to do so. Um, but uh, so that's my my take on it. That we we are probably through the peak in inflation globally. I'm I'm not going to be pinned to the wall on that one. But um, I, I sense that the world economy is slowing, not slumping. I don't know whether you'd agree with that headline description of it, Jim. Yeah, I would, Chris. Uh, most of the economic data we look at uh, still suggesting. Um, you know, a slowing level of economic activity, definitely not a collapse in activity. Uh, The one thing that really stands out, I think, in this so far in this economic cycle is despite all of these global headwinds, labor markets remain very strong. Uh, The, as you said, the latest non-farm payrolls in the States, 263,000 new jobs created, which is significantly higher than the markets had been expecting and continues to suggest a strong labour market. But in the euro area this week, we saw the October unemployment rate come in at 6.5% of the labour force. That is the lowest level of unemployment we've ever had in the euro area since its formation. So labour markets continue to be very tight. And indeed, in Ireland, the November unemployment rate at 4.4%, an economy that's virtually at full employment. So to date... The slowdown we're seeing in global activity is having very little, if no impact on the labor market performance. Some of Jay Powell's comments during the week, um, I thought were quite stark. You know, he alluded to a possibility of a slowing in the pace of interest rate rises when the Fed makes its decision on December 14th. But then he went on to say that there is still a long way to go in the fight against inflation. He then turned around and said, but we do not want to over tighten. So it's the central bankers typically speak with forked tongues and we're getting an element of that here as well. Um, The labor markets, he said, must become substantially softer before the Federal Reserve will relax and that the US economy needs a sustained period of below trend growth to get 
inflation under control. And he also said that job gains remain far too high for comfort at the moment. And today's labour market report, as to say, certainly um, will not provide much solace to him in that regard. So I, I think Powell was making all sorts of comments covering every possible angle during the week. Uh, but clearly, um, I think like, like a lot of other central banks at the moment, he is just pursuing this agenda of increasing interest rates by as much as it takes to try and get inflation and inflation expectations under control. And if that means below trend economic growth or even recession and a significant increase in unemployment, that is a price worth paying to get inflation under control. So um, it's going to be you know, an interesting month on the interest rate front. We have the US decision on the 14th of December. We have the Bank of England and the European Central Bank making interest rate announcements on December 15th. And if I was a betting individual at this stage, I would be saying three half percent increases, the most likely outcome in those three jurisdictions. I think it's important to just record that, you know, we did get inflation, as you said earlier, in the eurozone out this week. And it was the first fall in 17 months. Uh, It was 10%, which, of course, is way, way too high. um, But it was down from 10.6%. So we are beginning to see what the peak in inflation is going to look like, in my view. But there's a socio-political dimension to all of this inflation wages story that we, we, we keep talking about that I think it, that sometimes gets lost in all of this discussion. And that was my refers to my comment earlier on that wages were a bit stronger than the markets would have liked uh, in the last month in the States. There was, there was a, a, smaller, uh, a small increase that was bigger than expected. And I think that if you remember, before we had all of these crises of the last few years, one of the things that you and I would have talked about was the crisis of inequality. And one of the things that this inflation is doing is uh, helping a little bit in that, in that some of the inequality statistics have gotten better. Now, before anybody jumps on me and says, well, what about real wages not keeping up? And they're not. Um, But the jobs market is. And I think that that's the story here is that one of the things that that many economists speculated on just a couple of years ago and up until very recently was the coming jobs apocalypse. Um, thanks to things like automation, artificial intelligence, and all the rest of it. Um, But there is certainly no sign of that jobs apocalypse at all, despite the um, rapid increases, actually, in artificial intelligence. There's all sorts of things going on there that we would be talking about if we didn't have all this other stuff to talk about. For example, um, if you look at, uh, there's a Twitter account called at OpenAI, which does track a lot of developments in artificial intelligence. And that Twitter account this week referred us to um, some uh, intelligent machine language stuff that's going on in that you can actually talk to this particular machine. And it's extraordinary what artificial intelligence by way of speech recognition and speech development, the machine itself talking and being able to have a conversation. Some people are scared to death by this, as I say, Everybody then talks about everybody's job being lost. Other people are much encouraged by this. And artificial intelligence is something that I think we should do a deeper dive on going forward. But going back to my point, my sociopolitical point, is that from an employment point of view, not necessarily a real wage point of view, 
and inequality point of view, the two are linked, obviously. This red-hot labour market that we've had on both sides of the Atlantic has got silver linings. I know the cloud is inflation, but um, it, it is a good thing, we think. We've always said, as economists, as human beings, it's much better for people to be in work than out of work. Surely a a jobs market where you go through the streets of London, of Dublin, of New York, or in Canada, where I am at the moment, and there are help-wanted signs everywhere. Now, I know that there are negative aspects to that, but from a people perspective, surely, Jim, that's a good thing? Yes, it is. Absolutely. I mean, the greatest dignity I think you can give an individual is the ability to be able to earn and to work, uh, both from a mental, from a social, from an economic perspective. Um, So, you know, reduced unemployment, I think, is an unambiguously positive development. And um, long may it continue. Chris, you wanted to talk about some a few of the comments we've got in on our account over the last few days, particularly in response to the last podcast we did, where you were speaking, for example, about the zero COVID policy in China. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Yeah, the, the, there's a couple of things I want to say about that. One general point is that uh, I want to say keep it coming because one of the things that's happening on our pod, both in terms of the comments that people put on our Substack site, the Twitter messages, email messages that we get sent directly, uh, doesn't really matter how people communicate with us. We just think it's great that they do from a whole, you know, from a human connection point of view, from a suggested topic point of view, and us learning about our mistakes the errors that we make in what we say, but also in what people are interested in. And it's quite clear that despite the fact that we all think and hope that the pandemic is behind us, there are aspects of that that are still massively controversial. One of the things that happened as a result of our reprise of COVID corner and some remarks we made about the zero COVID strategy being pursued in China and suggested should have been pursued in Ireland was that some people suggested we had no right 
well, I had no right to say the things that I did. And one of the one of the things I say about that, of course, is freedom of speech, mate. Second thing, perhaps a little bit more childishly, is that it's our podcast and we can say what we like. I don't think that we are that influential that people should get exercised about our views. And that the, surely the right way to deal with uh, us, if you disagree with us, is rather than saying you are not entitled or you are not qualified, you are not expert enough to say anything about this, is simply to correct the mistakes that we make. And whatever, if we're, as non-experts, saying things that are wrong, just point that out and we will correct it. We, we will um, do a mea culpa. But one of the things, of course, that people do is that they play the man, not the ball. They make ad hominem attacks. And I think that that is, you know, ever present on social media and we're not going to get away from it. But it would be nice if we can have that kind of a discussion on our website, in our interactions with our with our listeners. One Another thing that really seemed to exercise people was our comments about United Ireland. And we, we've had a whole bunch of discussions with various people about that. And one of the things that emerged from that is people commenting on the research, such as it is, about the economics of a United Ireland. And people have been asking us if we do a deeper dive into this in the future. And that's certainly one that we have added to our list. And a very substantive point that one more than one commentator made uh, is that post-United Ireland, a lot of the research, some of the research that has been published about that, that says the financial impact on the Republic will be uh, benign. And who knows? Um, we haven't done the deep dive yet. But there is published research that says that the UK subvention to Northern Ireland, which could be as much as 15 billion a year, we think at the moment, um, will in some shape or form continue for a long period of time. And the other thing that uh, people seem to have said is that the debt, the share of UK national debt that is on a per capita basis present in Northern Ireland on the shoulders of the, the Northern Ireland economy will somehow be forgotten about or forgiven. And that will be taken on the shoulders of the English, Welsh and Scottish taxpayer. That remains to be seen. But all of these issues will come to the fore. And uh, one commentator likened the forecast that what would happen after a United Ireland would be a similar thing that has happened after Brexit, in that a lot of people that uh, clamoured for it uh, in advance, when it actually turns out, they will say, just as the Brexiteers are saying, um, this was not the United Ireland I voted for, uh, just as people are saying, this is not the Brexit I voted for. So I, I, I raised a smile at that, and I suspect you did too, Jim. I, I did indeed, Chris. Um, I was making the point the other day in relation to United Ireland, while in theory I think it's a great idea, um, the political dimension is still very complicated, the social dimension is very complicated, and the economic dimension is very challenging. As you say, 15 billion sterling's direct subvention from the UK government, a labour force that has a heavy preponderance of public sector jobs, uh, doesn't have a particularly strong industrial base. Its productivity is estimated to be 40% lower than in the southern part of the island. Um, so it's, it's, it's a massive economic challenge. And of course, there is the issue around the apportionment of the Northern Ireland component of the UK national debt to a united ireland so there are many many issues um, many many economic challenges i think um, like brexit anybody who believes that a united ireland will be nirvana from day one i think is being naive in the extreme it's going to be a very very challenging process 
it will take years to work through it to try and normalize the situation, at least from an economic perspective. I'm not sure if you can ever normalize the political situation, given that a large percentage of the population up north simply does not want to be part of United Ireland. And um, that's their right, obviously. So, uh, and and then I, I guess the, the other question is, in the event of United Ireland, how much financial assistance would be given by the UK government, by the European Union, and perhaps by the United States to achieve a United Ireland? Perhaps there will be very, very strong financial support to achieve a United Ireland and that um, the economic challenge won't be that significant so yeah, a lot, of, think, a lot I, of questions to be answered here yeah and i think that it's interesting that we are having the debate in this way that we are framing the question in this way because we're, we're moving gradually to assuming it's going to happen it's one of those things that we kind of sort of feel has become a much higher probability event than perhaps we would have thought a couple of years ago and rather than thinking about that probability we're now thinking about the consequences so we do, we've no idea when it will happen, but we're, we're getting more certain without being certain that it will happen at some point, perhaps even in our lifetimes, Jim, and that therefore we must start to think about the consequences. And I think, as I say, that is very much added to the list. Another set of readers' comments, quite a few of them, uh, was a request, actually, for us to do another deep dive, which we've done several times in the past on housing, and we should do that. And people also suggested that we should get a recognised housing expert on the show, which is another great suggestion. And certainly if there are any recognised housing experts out there listening at the moment that would like to come on the show and have a fact-based discussion about the Irish and other uh, economies' housing problems, we'd be delighted to host you. And uh, I can promise an emotion-free, political-free discussion. Yeah, Chris, one thing I would like to say in issuing that invitation, um, the one thing I don't want is an ideological debate on housing because there are some housing experts there out there who are just being driven by a political ideological perspective. Um, I have no interest in going into that sort of ideological debate about housing. Um, I would like somebody to talk about the facts around it. And a lot of the facts we know, uh, but also uh, there's a lot we don't know about possible solutions. Uh, but but the notion that private sector is bad, public sector is good in terms of housing delivery, um, I think that's utter nonsense. And it's, it's not a debate I actually want to waste my time engaging in. But like yourself, I would welcome um, anyone out there who would like to come on and have a rational, balanced, non-ideological discussion about the housing yeah. market. We, 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 we want to answer the question, is there a solution to the housing crisis? Is there a unique solution? Is there more than one solution? Is, are there a series of steps, policy choices, either ors that we could take? And what would be the consequences of those choices, those policy levers that we might choose to pull? And possibly even suggesting that there isn't uh, an easy solution to the housing crisis, but um, certainly not uh, any ideology, please. That would be uh, extremely helpful. Uh, and we should reach out as well, Jim, to anybody that we know uh, to come on the show and talk about that. Jim, I just wanted to conclude my, what I wanted to say today, at least. Um, I don't know whether you've got anything left with um, reference to a, a fantastic article I read on Reuters this week, the news agency Reuters, that talked about 
uh, the bubble in predicting the end of the world. And it was a great article because I too have noticed, as did the author of this article, a guy called Ed Chancellor, you may have heard of him, he's a quite a well-known commentator, um, he's noticed that there are lots and lots of people essentially writing books, articles, doing podcasts, suggesting that the end of the world in some shape or form is nigh. This article begins with a quote from a, a, another writer, um, another doomsayer. Our earth is degenerate in these latter days. Bribery and corruption are common. Children no longer obey their parents. Every man wants to write a book and the end of the world is evidently approaching. End of quote. And of course, you probably guessed that these words were inscribed on an Assyrian tablet nearly 5,000 years ago. Doom mongering is something that comes and goes uh, in and out of fashion. And the, the modern way of describing all this doom uh, mongering is polycrisis. That's one of the words of 2023. And uh, uh, there are lots of people talking about the polycrisis that we face. Uh, people that th this article and I would mention would include people like Larry Summers, who said that the world faces the most complex, disparate and cross-cutting set of challenges he's ever encountered. But the number one doomsayer um, who's in the past already been nicknamed Dr. Doom before he wrote his latest book is a guy called Professor Nuriel Rubini. And he's been around economic, academic economics for some time. He's been around financial markets for some time as a commentator, as an analyst, as an economics professor. And he's written a new book called Mega Threats. And as Chancellor says in this article, that book runs the whole doom and gloom gamut from debt crisis to mankind's future enslavement by robots. I mentioned that earlier on. And Chancellor has a little dig at Rubini uh, with a phrase which I really liked, is that what the New York University professor lacks in detailed analysis, he makes up with hyperbole. The world faces, a quote here, the mother of all debt meltdowns, and another great depression is on the horizon. The polycrisis is something, a word, a term that is used a lot. I think it was invented by a really great economic historian called Adam Tooze. And anything on Twitter, his own, I think he's got a substack, but whatever his his writings, Adam Tooze has written books and, and blog posts that are well worth reading. And he also has written lots of stuff about this. Chancellor himself has written a book. And one of the reasons, I guess, why he's written this article for Reuters is to promote the book, saying that one of the, the key drivers of the current crisis that we face, and I think this chimes with what Rubini is saying about the debt thing, is that uh, Chancellor argues that the era of ultra-low interest rates um, that really have persisted in the decade after the global financial crisis, that inflated asset price bubbles everywhere, has built up all this leverage in the system, too much borrowing, too much debt, widespread misallocation of capital and you know, ridiculous risk-taking all over the place. This has rendered the system, the economic system, the financial, global financial system, so fragile that it is making it extraordinarily difficult for our central bankers to return interest rates to historically normal levels without crashing the economic system. And I think that's an important point. One of the reasons why we on this podcast and, and financial markets generally obsess about the latest twitch, murmurings, writings, uh, speeches from central bankers is can they get us back to something like normal without crashing the system because of all this debt risk-taking misallocation of capital that's being built up during the uh, the era of zero interest rates and we don't know 
it could well be that Rubini is right and that a big crash is coming because they they won't be able to do it. But we all sit here hoping that they will. I actually believe that they will. I don't think there's much point actually in believing that they won't um, because that, that would just be too depressing for words. Let's just deal with it if, as, as it comes. Um, but I, one of the, the phrases that Chancellor uses, and this is where I'll finish, I could talk about this all day, but I'll finish here, is that he talks about returning to normal uh, with respect to interest rates. And it's very important to realise that if you look at the long-term history of interest rates and short rates and particularly bond yields, the all-important government borrowing rate that determines everything in our financial lives, there's no such thing as normal. Um, I could put you a chart up here, Jim, of 800 years of bond yield history. Another fantastic piece of financial history was published by the Bank of England recently, and they've collated 800 years of government bond yields and they show that there is no such thing as normal. Just one chart shows that. They're all over the place. One of the most interesting things about the chart is that it trends down through time, tons of volatility, but bond yields have actually been falling for 800 years. Not a lot of people know that. So um, be careful with our prognostications for the future, but do note that there are lots of people saying that we don't have one, but this podcast will remain, or at least this half of the podcast will remain a cheerful and optimistic one. And I think all of this doom mongering is very, very misplaced. Don't know what you think, mate. Uh, Yeah, I am the ultimate optimist, Chris. Um, And yeah, I, I would not have that doom laden view on the future um i'm i'm not a believer in conspiracy theories so i um yeah i i i'm basically with you on that um i think we're probably two glass half full merchants chris we'll wrap it there um our next podcast early next week i'd like to uh, go through the details of the end november exchequer returns which will be really important because november is a big month for corporate tax receipts particularly and self-employed tax returns uh have a great weekend in canada my brother is home from san fran so i'm bringing him to thurlis tomorrow for the monster club hurling fine with bally gunner something you would know absolutely nothing about is that a horse race jim it's a horse race chris and there'll be loads of world cup soccer um i i'm not going to engage in a debate with you over the japanese winner against uh last night against Spain um, it was a most extraordinary goal um, I just cannot understand for the life of me how VAR uh, ruled a goal but there you are There's lots My of people knowledge of soccer tells me that uh, VAR has not had a good World Cup uh, in a number of regards but on the subject of our next podcast Jim, you mentioned that you will be discussing the all important November Exchequer returns in some detail, which is very, very important, but it may not be our next podcast. I later today will be recording an episode with um, the most extraordinary guy called Noah Smith. And I'd recommend anybody look up his Substack site, his Twitter account, Um, an extraordinary uh, Renaissance man, um, writes about a range of topics that I can only envy, and I'm really looking forward to the com- recording the conversation that I will be have with him, be having with him later today, and hopefully putting it up over the weekend. So you have a great weekend, Jim, and I hope that you look forward to that listening to that podcast I'm going to do with Noah. I do indeed, and sorry I can't make it. So talk, bye. Cheers, Jim. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, 
please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.